The reading is taken from Matthew chapter 16, starting at verse 13 to verse 20. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Prior to writing this sermon, I thought that I was relatively well acquainted with this passage. It's fairly well known, and I thought that its meaning was a straightforward and uncontroversial one. I can't be the only one who thought that everyone agreed that after Peter correctly identified who Jesus was, the meaning of what Jesus said to him was, Peter, you are a rock, and upon you and your profession of faith, I will build my body on earth, and evil will not be able to overpower it. Am I the only one to have thought that? Well, it wasn't long after I did a bit of Googling that I found out that this passage has actually been one of the most controversial in the Bible, due to its being a focal point of debate between Catholics and others about whether this made Peter the first Pope. And then that there is this debate about the whole Gates of Hades thing, and then much more about the word that's translated as church. So I ended up going down a bit of a rabbit hole looking into all of these things, but I shall do my best to summarise what I've learnt and how we might apply it. The story that we read today unfolds in a place called Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was located in the northern part of the Old Testament region of Bashan, whose name is argued by some to mean the place of the serpent because of one of the meanings of the root of the word being serpent or dragon. And it's situated at the foot of Mount Hermon, the tallest mountain in Israel, pictured on this slide here. Understanding this location, particularly Mount Hermon, is absolutely key to understanding the reference to the gates of Hades and providing the context for the rock of which Jesus is speaking. In Old Testament times, the area in which Caesarea Philippi eventually became established was a place where the Canaanite god Baal or Baal was worshipped. Looking back even before that, there's a lot of complicated and downright weird Old Testament and apocryphal stuff pointing towards this region and specifically Mount Hermon as being ground zero for the Genesis 6 transgression, i.e. the super bad stuff that happened leading up to the great flood in the time of Noah, where the fallen angels or sons of God had relationships with women which produced these supposedly giant beings called Nephilim. Even the evil Canaanites referred to the descendants of the Nephilim as spirits of the dead and Mount Hermon as the realm of the dead. Then the tra tribe of Dan moved to the region near Mount Hermon and slowly adopted the Canaanite worship of Baal and Ashtaroth, 
and later when the kingdom of Israel was split in two Jeroboam king in the north built a golden calf in the region and the people of Israel went there to worship and sacrifice to Baal rather than worshipping the living God Yahweh. Things were spiritually just as dark there in Jesus's day. Caesarea Philippi was also called Panias and was famous in the ancient world as a centre of worship of the god Pan and for a temple to Zeus. At Mount Hermon lies a cave that was believed to be the gates to the underworld, where fertility gods such as Pan dwelt during the winter and then returned to the earth each spring. There was an enormous interior waterfall that dropped into a pool that flowed into the Sea of Galilee. It was in the cave opening and the cascading water that the pagans of Jesus' day believed the fertility gods, Pan in particular, would return to the surface from the underworld each spring. And so there were these awful rituals to entice Pan to return to the surface. The cave where these ritual activities took place was called the Gates of Hades. So people in Jesus's day believed the cave literally held the gates to Hades that were considered to be the physical gates of hell or the underworld, pictured here on this slide. So to say that this was a super, super dodgy place spiritually is a massive understatement. This was essentially the place with the dirtiest morals and resulting horrendous behaviour within walking distance of Jesus's earthly ministry. And it is here in this broken, spiritually dark place of the worst types of disgusting sin that Jesus one day gathers his 12 disciples together and asks them this simple yet profound question. Who do people say the Son of Man, i.e. Jesus, is? And who do the disciples say the Son of Man is? Well, first they tell him who other people say he is. Essentially a hardcore prophet who was shaking things up like the prophets of old. But then Jesus asks them, who do you say that I am? In this messed up, spiritually chaotic place, standing at the gates of hell, who am I to you? Who do you say I am? And Peter replies with two separate but parallel concepts that Peter, by the inspiration of God's spirit, manages to connect. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. The Jews of Jesus' day believed in this coming figure called the Messiah, who would be some kind of anointed king who would be the spearhead of the movement that would free Israel from oppression and bring justice and peace to the world at last. And the word for anointed king in Hebrew and Aramaic is the word that we normally pronounce as Messiah. But nobody knew exactly what this Messiah would look like when he actually came, but probably some kind of warrior king who would bring God's kingdom into being at last. But Peter was also identifying him as the Son of God, which doesn't necessarily mean the second person of the Trinity as we now understand him to be. He doesn't necessarily realise that Jesus was God in human form in the way that would have made sense after the resurrection. Son of God was a biblical phrase indicating that he stood in particular relationship to God and was adopted to be his special representative. So Peter is saying, you are God's adopted son and the one of whom the Psalms and the prophets had spoken. 
and Jesus seems delighted and excited that God has revealed this to Peter and renames Peter Rock and says that on this rock he will build his church. Now there are two different words for rock here. Peter is a stone and the rock on which Jesus is going to build his church is a big bedrock, a big rock formation. And so it's believed that Jesus was talking about himself, the rock, but also Peter's confession. But it's significant that he's standing at the biggest rock formation in Israel, Mount Hermon, containing the gates of Hades as he says this. As I mentioned earlier, this is also a controversial discussion between Roman Catholics and those not of the Catholic tradition, but that's beyond the scope of this sermon. But what has blown my mind recently was finding out that the word translated as church isn't actually the word church in the original Greek. It's actually the word ecclesia or ecclesia. Ecclesia wasn't a religious term, but a Greek political one. It literally translates as the called out assembly, but refers to the governmental assembly of a place. The Ecclesia was an arm of government in a region that helped the governor administer the policies of Rome. The job of these citizens who made up the Ecclesia within a place was to assist to ensure that the policies and decrees of Rome passed down to them through the governor were enacted and enforced through the region of their jurisdiction. So essentially it meant a legislative or governing body in a region. But when King James authorised the translation of the Bible that bears his name, the King James Version, he banned any reference to the original usage of this word, most notably because it attacked his hold on power. He could not risk people thinking that they held any statutory legislative governing power. There were other religious political reasons he wouldn't even allow its translation to words such as congregation or assembly. And so the King James Version and most subsequent translations use the word church, which conjures up an entirely different set of images for most of us, such as a faith group, a family, even the body of Christ. And these aren't incorrect but they just don't really fully capture what it would have meant to Jesus' disciples. And when we know this, the next bit makes more sense as well. Jesus says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Which I think makes more sense in the Passion Translation, which says, I will give you the keys of heaven's kingdom realm to forbid on earth that which is forbidden in heaven and to release on earth that which is released in heaven. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to build a legislative body, a governing assembly on earth that will enact God's rule and reign, who will go forth and decree with their God-given authority, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I just imagine Jesus standing at the side of this epic mountain, surrounded by all sorts of things, both spiritually and physically, that are literally the opposite of the kingdom of God, and possibly even pointing at the cave of the gate of Hades as he says it, and saying, on this rock, I will build my governing assembly and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Yes, the rock is Peter. 
Yes, the rock is Peter's confession. Yes, the rock is ultimately Jesus. But rabbinically, because Jesus was a great rabbi, a great teacher, the rock that Jesus was pointing at is the gates of hell, the center of pandemonium. He's saying, I'm not going to build my church in a safe place. I'm going to build it right here. And this mess and this paganism is not going to prevail. You and I are going to bring my kingdom right here in the place of the most incredible spiritual chaos. And the gates of death itself will not be able to stand up against it. Gates are stationary structures. It's not talking about any risk of evil overcoming the church. It's about storming the gates of death. Jesus is running into the chaos and inviting his followers to do the same. And that's just so much more profound than I ever realised. So I feel like a better way of thinking about what Jesus said is, Peter, you are a rock. And through you and this profession of faith, I will build my ecclesia, my called out people, my governing body upon this rock. Jesus is the rock, but we're standing on the rock of Mount Hermon. And as you storm the gates of death, illustrated quite literally by the gates of Hades, these gates will not be able to withstand you. Jesus is inviting Peter his disciples and us to storm the gates of death to advance God's kingdom here on earth. But what does God's kingdom look like on earth? And what does it look like when it advances? I don't believe it's going on a crusade and trying to convince everyone into religion. When Jesus preached the message that God's kingdom was at hand, people's lives were totally transformed for the better, with healing of every disease and sickness, deliverance from demons and even resurrection. Jesus sends his own disciples out with instructions to proclaim the message that the kingdom of heaven has come near, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Individuals, families and entire regions get transformed when people find out the truth of God and how much he loves them. They're not judged, but they are convicted by the truth that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. It may come as no surprise to learn that I suddenly became much more interested in the really sort of tangible, evidential things of the kingdom of God, healing, deliverance, miraculous answers to prayer, when I was diagnosed this time last year with an aggressive breast cancer. I've read more books over this time than in the last 10 to 20 years put together. And when I've been too unwell to even sit up and open my eyes, I've had various podcasts on even as I've drifted in and out of sleep at my poorliest. And there are some crazy Christians in the world, seeing God move in the most miraculous ways. And I'm thinking, why do they get to see and do this stuff and I don't? What is it about them specifically that means that they get to see and do the stuff that Jesus did in his earthly ministry and that we read about happening in the early church in the book of Acts? And the only sort of common theme I found so far amongst all these people, these ministries, is this really firm foundational belief that God, Jesus, just is who he says he is and loves them 
and will back them up when they step out and do the things that Jesus did and calls them to do. And the most amazing stories are the ones where people seem to just walk right up to the gates of hell to do that stuff. One book that I particularly enjoyed, which I'm sure some people will have read already, was Chasing the Dragon, which was written by Jackie Pullinger about her time and her ministry in the walled city in Hong Kong. There's this great bit in her story where as a young Christian, she found herself very frustrated at a girl's Bible study as they all thanked God that they knew him and sat down to eat their meal of risotto. Her response was, how can you just sit there believing what you do? What about the people who haven't heard? Risotto? So she embarked on this journey of trying to become an overseas missionary. But after trying all the conventional ways of doing this, she was no further forward. And she ended up in conversation with a vicar who encouraged her to just get on and step out in faith if she really believed God had called her to be an overseas missionary. He said, If I were you, I would go out and buy a ticket for a boat going on the longest journey you can find and pray where to get off. You can't lose yourself if you put yourself completely in God's hands. If he doesn't want you to get on the ship, he is quite able to stop you or to make the sh ship go anywhere in the world. So that's what she did with, I think, £10 on her and no planned destination. And ultimately, she ended up in one of the most difficult places on earth, the now no longer existent walled city in Hong Kong, run entirely by gangs with no law enforcement whatsoever, where everyone was horribly addicted to heroin and life for its people seemed entirely without hope. And she just lives there with the people, sharing Jesus and his love and not backing down at the gates of hell and threats of death. And the book, the story of her life is just full of the most incredible miracles on every page and she sees God's kingdom advance and people set free and delivered and healed in ways that couldn't even have been imagined. And just last Saturday I was at a small breakfast meeting that my dad had organised back in my hometown of Aylesbury where he had Frog or Ewing telling a few of his stories. Frog his then girlfriend and now wife Amy, and another of their friends, in their university holidays at Cambridge in the mid-90s, decided they would go masquerading as journalists to Afghanistan to meet with the Taliban, as you do. And through a series of small miracles, they managed to make it there. And just before they meet with them, Amy has a dream about them giving the Taliban Bibles. So they managed to get hold of Bibles in various languages in Turkmenistan through where they had to travel to get to Afghanistan. And they struggled them across the border and then had their meeting interviewing the Taliban. And at the end of the meeting, they tell the Taliban about Jesus and give them these Bibles. And it goes remarkably well. There's obviously much more to the story. And Frog did say they genuinely didn't know whether they would make it back alive. But they knew and loved God and knew that that's where he told them to go. So they got on with it. And God had gone before them and came with them and backed them up. One of the Taliban leaders said that he had been praying to Allah for 20 years to get hold of a Bible. So these are people who have really known who Jesus is, the Messiah, the son of the living God. 
and they have known that the place to which Jesus has taken them is the place he wants to build his kingdom, and that as his ecclesia they have the authority to do that, and so have gone to places that are like the gates of Hades on earth, and the gates have crumbled with the weight of their God-given authority, and they have seen God's kingdom advance, accompanied by signs and wonders. But the first step was always, who do I say Jesus is? But what about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? For me, a particularly poignant and important moment in my story was the day of my operation last September. I had a real miraculous answer to prayer in my surgery being moved to the day that it was, and so I went into the operation full of faith, feeling that God was totally in control. I was due just to have the lump of cancer removed, which would have meant not even needing any further chemotherapy after that. But during the surgery, they found out that it had started spreading to my lymph nodes, and I woke up to find out that they'd stripped all of the lymph nodes out underneath my arm, and I totally fell to pieces. I spent the entire day on the ward just weeping, certain that I was going to die, and saying over and over that God had completely abandoned me. And at some point during the afternoon, I staggered over to the toilet in my hospital gown, still attached to my drip stand, and knelt on the floor and cried out to God that nothing made sense and I felt totally deserted. I said to God, either you just don't exist, or worse still, you do exist and you're a liar because I know that I've really prayed in faith and stood on the promises that you've given us in the Bible and you've not answered and you've not kept your end of the bargain. Or you do exist and you're not a liar and you're everything that you say that you are, but your thoughts are above my thoughts and your ways are above my ways and I just can't see the bigger picture yet. And that's what I'm going to choose to believe. But I'm not going to leave this hospital without the miracle that I prayed for. And what greater miracle than seeing your kingdom advancing. So give me someone to share you with today. Now this makes me sound like a really good Christian. But in actual fact this was a prayer of desperation. A kind of if I pray a really good prayer then God has to answer it exactly the way I pray it. And then I know he's actually real. I had never been so desperate in all my life. Anyway, long story short, that evening as I was leaving the hospital, I quite miraculously to me ended up in conversation with sharing and praying with another patient in the corridor on the way out to the car park and was completely blown away by the whole experience. And there's this whole other very convoluted but quite miraculous story that goes alongside it, which I've shared with some of you. But as I've gone through this journey over the last year, I've actually ended up having so many more amazing experiences with God. I still find myself most days feeling like I'm standing at the gates of Hades, wondering how on earth I got here and why on earth this of all places is where Jesus is choosing to show me who he is. But I am so grateful that I do know that Jesus is the Messiah and the son of the living God. So this morning, I want to challenge all of us. Who do we say Jesus is? Do we really walk in the knowledge of him as the Messiah, the son of the living God? And do we really realise the gravity of that and what it means to walk in the authority of being God's ecclesia here on earth? And are we willing to storm into the chaos, the gates of Hades, knowing that God has got the victory? 
And if you don't fully know any of that, either because you've never been sure of what you believe or because you've become disillusioned or because your faith is something separate from the rest of your life, I'd really encourage you to talk and pray with others. The prayer ministry team are great and have been faithfully praying for me over the last year. And if you do feel that you already know all of that, then it's a challenge to us to start walking in confidence and praying big, dangerous prayers and expecting even bigger, exciting answers as we step out in faith, knowing that the gates of Hades will crumble as we approach them with Jesus.